Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. And if you're a first timer, welcome aboard. Joining me now is a longtime friend of the show, author Galen White, who continues to produce classic books about baseball's golden age. The latest is entitled Left on Base in the Bush Leagues. As the cover says, it's about legends, near greats, and unknowns in the minors. And great to have you back on the show, Galen. What inspired you to write this one? As a kid growing up in Los Angeles, there were a lot of players in the Pacific Coast League, which was at the top part of the minor league chain. A lot of great players coming through L.A., and I always wondered, what are these guys doing here? Why aren't they in the majors? Now, in many cases, they had been in the majors, and they were back in the Coast League. There were a few players like Bill Mazeroski, an 18-year-old when I saw him, who, of course, would go on to the majors and be in the Hall of Fame. But it was that curiosity of guys who were great at one level in the minors and either never made it to the majors, or if they did, uh, they didn't have nearly the success. There were so many great characters and stories in this one. And early in the book, you mentioned how Fenway Park actually had what I would say was their version of Tal's Hill out there. It was located right in front of the Green Monster. What was it called? Give us the name of that. And can you share the story about Smeed Jolly? It was Duffy's Cliff. And you had to go up the hill before you hit the wall. And then, of course, you had to come down. Well, Smeed Jolly was never known for his defense. He was an outstanding hitter. He won six minor league batting titles. And his batting average in the short period of time he was in the majors was over 300. But he had a very, very difficult time on defense. His manager at that time worked with him extremely hard on going up the hill to the extent that Smead was doing quite well. Then in one game, he uh, went back on a ball and uh, went up on the hill fine but then he fell down as he came down the hill. And then he complained that nobody showed him how to come down the hill. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like something that uh, Astros fans might've been concerned about when the Tal Hill was up there. Uh, you know, in these parts, probably for most baseball fans, Nolan Ryan had the best fastball in major league history, but you wrote about two players who may have thrown it harder than Nolan, Steve Dalkowski and a pitcher nicknamed Necktie, perfect nickname for a fastball pitcher. Tell us a little bit about those two guys. Steve Dalkowski, many believe, threw harder than anyone who ever played the game of baseball. Uh, Kyle Ripken Sr., this is uh, the Hall of Famer Kyle Ripken's father, uh, played in the minors with uh, Dalkowski. And, of course, he saw Nolan Ryan pitch. And he believed that Dalkowski was faster than Nolan by anywhere between 5 and 10 miles per hour. Well, the radar guns they had in Dalkowski's day were rather crude. You had to get the ball within a certain spot on the radar gun. Uh, Bob Feller had used the same type of technology and was able to get the ball in there, and they clocked him, of course, around 100 miles per hour. But in Dalkowski's case, control was a real issue, not only on the field but off the field. Off the field, he was a heavy drinker. On the field, he could hardly throw strikes. And so he had a hard time getting the ball into that area where they could register it properly. But most everybody agrees that if he wasn't the fastest pitcher ever to play the game, he uh, was was very close to it. In fact, uh, Dalkowski was the inspiration for the character Nuke LaRouche in the movie Bull Durham. Now, Ron Nechai, or as Dizzy Dean called him, Necktie, Ron Nechai uh, was with 
the Pittsburgh Pirates in 52. Dalkowski never made it to the majors. Nechai made it to the majors from Class D to the Pirates in 1952. The reason he did was that in early in the 52 season, in a Class D game in Bristol, Virginia, he struck out 27 in a nine-inning game. He went on to strike out in 45 and two-third innings, 109 batters. Um, Branch Rickey later said that Ron Nechai had greater stuff than anyone who ever played on any of his teams. That includes the Cardinals and the Dodgers. And Joe Gargiel, who caught Ron Nechai, said the same thing. In fact, at that time, he was being compared with Dizzy Dean. Uh, Nechai had a 1-6 record in the majors at the end of the 52 season. He was drafted. He already had ulcers in the Army. The ulcers uh, were aggravated. He got out. He was discharged after three months, hurt his arm, never returned to the majors again. Maybe Brett Strom could have gotten hold of these guys with the Astros and done something with them. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, right now, the Astros have this incredible Cuban influx, Galen, with Yuli Gurriel, Jordan Alvarez, Aledmus Diaz, and, and both Rogelio Armenteras and Cienel Perez uh, have both been up, you know, up and down with the big club this year. But way back in 1947... In Big Spring, Texas, you talk about a guy named Pat Stacy and a super scout named Joe Cambria, who brought boatloads of Cuban ball players. Uh, you wrote that Cambria was dubbed the godfather of Cuban baseball, right? Yes. Cambria had a close connection with the Washington Senators and Calvin Griffith, the owner. So he was supplying the Senators with Cuban players as early as the 1930s. After the World War II, Pat Stacy was well on his way to the majors, and then the war came along. After the war, he decided to go back to his native Texas. He played for a semi-pro team there in Big Spring, and then he organized uh, the Longhorn League, was a player, manager, and owner in that league, won three batting titles, so quite a good player in his own right. But what he did was surrounded himself with Cuban players. These were the players that Cambria had recruited out of Cuba and was looking for places for him to land in the minor leagues of the U.S. One of the players was Camillo Pasquale, who went on to have a very fine major league career and still is near the top in terms of strikeouts. Another one was Mike Fornelius, who won something like 60 games in the majors. There was a shortstop named Ozzy Alvarez. But beginning in 1946, Stacy uh, began bringing these Cubans to Big Spring, Texas, and uh, he won two pennants. Finished second three times, third on another occasion. Uh, the Big Spring Bronx were their nicknames. Uh, they got national publicity. They were known as the Yankees of uh, Class D, and, and then the league became Class C. So they were the Yankees of minor league baseball in Texas at that time. Eventually, the other teams in the Longhorn and in the West Texas New Mexico League began using Cuban players, primarily in the beginning light-skinned Cuban players, but eventually some of the darker-skinned Cubans joined the, the parade. But uh, really, uh, Stacy brought down the walls of, of uh, segregation with uh, bringing in these Cubans altogether. He brought in close to 200 Cubans into uh, Big Spring and then later on Roswell and Hobbs, New Mexico. Many of these Cubans stayed in the U.S. In fact, one is still living. His name is Tito Aaron Sebia. And I believe Tito has a relative that's playing Major League Baseball now. I can't recall off the top of my head his first name. But Tito uh, is close to 90, 
and in, Tito in turn brought 37 members of his family from Cuba. So one of the things I point out in the uh, chapter on uh, Pat Stacy and all the players he brought over, not only did it change the landscape in terms of baseball in Texas, it also had quite a cultural impact in that it, it brought Cubans to Texas, and in turn, it helped many of these players get their uh, families out of Castro's Cuba. Yeah, do you think that it just would have continued uh, if it wasn't for, I guess, Castro, I would assume, is the, the Castro and, and kind of the politics that sort of changed everything for the, the Cuban influx, right? Yes. I, I Well, what, what Stacy did, this was in the uh, – he was still uh, bringing them over in the 50s. And, of course, the situation in the miners in the early 50s was you had the Korean War. That put quite a crunch on the young players uh, that could be the, – the Americans that could be used. So – the Cubans were a natural supply of talent during the Korean War period, and also they would play for less money. And, of course, the financial situation of the miners at that time, because of the pressure coming in from television, and later on, Little League also provided pressure on the miners. The Cubans were just, you might say, the uh, what the doctor ordered, because they were outstanding players and they were affordable. Tons of Texas ties in this book. Uh, I mean, if people want to pick it up, you're going to find a lot of minor league teams and players in Texas. And for those in the area who went to school at Texas Tech, they might have heard of La Mesa, Texas, which is just about 60 miles south of Lubbock. It, it might be hard to believe, but back in 1950, Galen, you, you talked about La Mesa had a minor league baseball team that drew 100,000 fans a year. And back then, the population was 10,000, which is about the same as it is today. It's almost unbelievable when you think about it now, Galen. It is a great story, wasn't it? It was. In fact, they, the letterhead, their stationary letterhead was the biggest little town, uh, biggest little baseball city in the USA. And it was an amazing town. You mentioned the one year, I believe it was 50 or 51. They drew over 100,000 fans. They were outdrawing much larger cities in the league, Albuquerque, Amarillo, and Lubbock, for example. Uh, they had some uh, good players. Uh, there was one player named D.C. Miller. His nickname was Pud or T-Bone, depending on where you were. But he was a great minor league hitter, and he came into La Mesa and just missing the first six weeks of the season, still hit 52 home runs, the 1949 season in La Mesa. So uh, La Mesa is one of the towns in there. Big Spring is another one. In fact, uh, Walter Buckle, who is sort of the storyteller in the La Mesa chapter, he grew up in California, hitchhiked to Big Spring, Texas. This is before the war. And the reason he went to Big Spring is, following the sporting news, found out that Big Spring the previous season had the worst team in the minor leagues. So he figured, well, I want to play baseball, and if I can't make the worst team, in uh, baseball, then maybe I should give it up. But he wanted to give it a shot. So he hitchhiked to Big Spring. He got there. The manager told him that the Big Spring team had just uh, signed an agreement with the Dodgers, and he sent him up the road to La Mesa. He wound up playing baseball for La Mesa there uh, before and after the war. Uh, when he quit playing baseball, became the business manager of the La Mesa team, and then the publisher of the La Mesa paper, and lived the rest of his life in La Mesa, Texas. One of my favorite things was you said when a La Mesa player hit a home run, there was a tradition of what they called picking lettuce or picking the screen. We'll explain what that was because this is pretty funny. The tradition, um, most people believe, started in West Texas. After World War II, uh, there was, of course, great joy in the country because the war was over. And they also had a prosperity that they hadn't had in some time. 
you know, during the war, uh, tires and gas and lots of different foods were rationed. And so people had money to spend. They went to the ballpark. That was the primary form of entertainment because you didn't have television. You didn't have air conditioning. So the ballpark was that kind of community center. And in Amarillo, for example, where the tradition really got off to a great start, Joe Bauman and Bob Cruz, both who were home run kings at different times, played there. And when they would hit home runs, the fans would stick one or five or $10 bills through the screen. And they called it picking the fence, picking the screen. Uh, they referred to the money in some case, in most cases as lettuce. I've seen references to it as cabbage. Uh, it was a way of these players to make extra money. And it also, uh, for some of them, it was so attractive that they didn't want to play elsewhere. They didn't want to move up. And Obama's case, uh, when he set the all-time record in 1954 at Roswell, on the last day of the season, he had three home runs to break the tie that he was in with Joe Hauser and Bob Cruz at 69. Uh, he had a home run in the first at bat in the first game of a doubleheader that broke the record. And in the second game, he had two more. He collected $800 that day picking the screen. In today's dollars, that's $8,000. And it was 70 home runs, right? Was the, the record, the minor league record for home runs? 72 home runs. And that was the all-time record for baseball until Barry Bonds hit 73. But I like to refer to Joe Bauman's home runs as steroid-free. <laughs> yeah, probably so. Uh, and, and it's funny you mentioned Bob Cruz because I was going to ask about him. A guy playing in Amarillo, Texas named Bob Cruz broke Hack Wilson's record, his one-season RBI total of 191, which even that record in the major leagues today is, is almost, you know, untouchable. There's nobody that's really been close to Hack Wilson in the major leagues, but but in the minor leagues, he had 254 RBIs in a season. How, how do you do that? <laughs> well, there were a lot of men on base, but he had hit 69 home runs in 1948, and that tied the record set by Joe Hauser at Minneapolis in 1933. So Cruz, uh, of, of his home runs, eight of them were grand slams. Twelve came with two runners on base and 26 with one aboard. His home runs alone produced 143 runs. He batted 404, which, by the way, was only third best in the league. And um, his number of RBI is 254. No one's going to touch that. By the way, he did that in 140 games. And that was 32 more than Joe Bauman had. Uh, well, Joe Bauman had 222 RBIs in the 1954 season when he hit 72. So that's 32 more than what Joe hit when he had his great home run season. Of course, Hack Wilson, as you mentioned, he had 191 in 1930. And the highest since World War II is Manny Ramirez. Uh, with the Cleveland Indians, and that was 165. So were these guys, they're in West Texas, like Bob Cruz for sure, but a, a Bob Cruz and Joe Bauman, are, are they playing at ballparks where the wind's always blowing out? There's a lot of wind in West Texas too. The wind taketh and giveth away, and that's what happened to uh, Bob Cruz. He hit uh, three home runs very late to get at 69, and the wind was blowing out on that particular uh, doubleheader. And then the last day of the season, he had a doubleheader, and the wind was blowing in. Uh, if he had hit that 70th home run, a photograph of him was to be put on the front of a Wheaties box. He didn't hit that home run, and he never made it on the front of the Wheaties box. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, give us a, a character or two from your book we haven't talked about, or maybe a story that goes along with him, because 
I mean, there's just so many to get into, but I, I just want to give you open floor because you know these guys better than anybody. Which, which one do you think is the maybe the funniest or the most interesting guy? The one that first came to mind when you asked this question is Joe Taylor because several of the players I interviewed about Joe Taylor said that if he had been able to control his drinking, he would be in Cooperstown. And I think of Joe because of uh, the recent inductions into the Hall of Fame at Cooperstown. Joe, uh, in many people's opinion, he had Harmon Killebrew plus power. One player, when he first saw him break into the Coast League, he had three home runs in his first at bat at Portland in the PCL, which is the highest level of the Coast League. Uh, his name was Eddie Basinski, who had been in the majors. Eddie thought he was looking at the Black Babe Ruth. Uh, Joe Taylor was a great hitter. He also was a heavy drinker. He had several cups of coffee in the majors with the Cincinnati Reds, the St. Louis Cardinals. By the way, he roomed with Kurt Flood for a while. And then he also played with the Baltimore Orioles. Everybody agrees that Joe Taylor was a, a great hitter. And if he had been able to, to control the bottle, that uh, he might well be in Cooperstown. So Joe Taylor is one of them. There's quite a, he was a, a wonderful man. I interviewed him on two different occasions. Very likable, very funny. Uh, you know, some of the stories around his drinking, uh, yeah, they're funny. There's some funny stories around it because uh, Joe didn't realize how serious the problem was, but it was quite serious. And there are some funny stories in the book about one, for example, how Jack McKeon, who was his manager in Vancouver, Joe had been down in the bullpen and he'd been put there to kind of sober up Well, he was driving the guys in the bullpen crazy. And one of the bullpen guys, uh, had been going down and telling Jack McKeon, you got to get Taylor out of the bullpen. Uh, He's driving us all crazy. Well, finally, in the ninth inning, one of the pitchers goes down and tells Jack McKeon, Joe says, if you put him in, he'll break up this no hitter. Well, McKeon called for Joe to pinch hit, and he described it as he couldn't believe how Joe staggered to the plate. First pitch, he had a line drive off the wall, breaking up the no hitter. Next batter hit a home run and Vancouver won the game. So that's the kind of things that that, uh, Joe was capable of. Branch Rickey observed that even with a snootful, a snootful of alcohol, that he was a great hitter. That's one of them, Joe Taylor. Another one is Tom Jordan is kind of in the news lately because he's the oldest living major league ball player. He'll turn 100 in September 5. He uh, is finally getting some recognition. He played with three different teams in the majors. He played uh, in the minors uh, 18 years, a uh, career batting average of uh, 338. And he kept returning to Roswell, New Mexico, where he had a ranch because he preferred playing ball in the minors for the same reason Joe Bauman did. He was a home run hitter. He got a lot of money picking the fences. But uh, Tom's son, Tom Jordan Jr., pitched and hit the Roswell Little League team in 1956 to the World Championship, uh, the Little League World Series uh, Championship. So, that's a, a, a fun story to read, and I think it's relevant to today. Yeah, speaking of uh, old and living ball players, we talked to one of the oldest living ball players, and you wrote the book about him, and, and you set us up with uh, the great handsome Ransom Jackson. He just passed away a few months ago. Uh, just final thoughts on and memories of you spending all that time with him, getting to know him and, and what he was all about. He became like a brother. I didn't know Ransom until I started to work with him on book. So that puts him at around age 89. He died in March at age 93. Uh, We became very close, not only us, but our wives. And I became close to his family. Uh, When you work with someone on a book like that, you expect, of course, to get close. 
you want to get close because you're trying to help them tell their story. But, uh, uh, you know, I have to tell you, even though I knew who Ransom Jackson was when I started the book, uh, I knew he'd been a two-time All-Star with the Cubs. I knew he had uh, batted cleanup for the Dodgers after he joined them in 1956. But he was an outstanding storyteller. Yeah, and if anybody wants to hear more about Handsome Ransom Jackson, you know, go back, l- listen to that interview that we did a couple of years ago. It's in the archives. Uh, just one of the best interviews. He's a great storyteller, great character, uh, as you mentioned. And just, you know, there's so many great stories. He was, you know, I, I called him the Forrest Gump uh, of uh, baseball players because he just, he, he seemed to run across uh, one you know, famous person after another and was in one big situation after another, including, you know, getting to play with Jackie Robinson. Um, Speaking of great players and legends, uh, Cooperstown this weekend inducted a brand new class, Galen, Harold Baines, Lee Smith, Edgar Martinez, Mike Mussina, Mariano Rivera, and then the late Roy Holiday, his wife gave this incredibly emotional speech, was probably the highlight of the ceremony. Uh, As you watch the players get in this weekend what are your thoughts on on these on this group of guys and and what you saw this weekend first off i don't want to take anything away from what any of them achieved they're all outstanding players but when i look at let's say harold baines i think about players like tony oliva who are not there and jim cott an outstanding pitcher who is still announcing i think jim won something like 260 270 games and had a great career. He's not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, when I think of Minnie Minoso, Minnie Minoso, Mr. White Sox, is not in the Hall of Fame. So when I think of guys like Minoso, Oliva, Luis Tiant, Jim Cott, who aren't in the Hall of Fame, and a Harold Baines is, I've got a question mark and a concern. You know, if you're going to put a Harold Baines in, these other guys ought to be in as well. I guess that's where I'll leave it. Yeah, he is pretty controversial choice. I can say I grew up watching Harold Baines. He was one of those guys that was around when I was a kid, and you'd see him on, you know, the game of the week. Or, you know, I get I get a chance to see him play. I mean, these days, they're, these guys are on all the time. But, you know, occasionally we get to see, see Harold Baines play, and, you know, he, he just wasn't somebody that I thought, oh, that guy is a Hall of Famer. I thought, oh, he's a pretty good ball player. But, you know, I, the, the the Veterans Committee, that's probably another story for another day. And the Hall of Fame maybe needs to look at the, the process a little bit closer on, on, on what, what they're going to do there. But um, just want to say, Galen, once again, you brought some wonderful forgotten and untold stories to life. Uh, how can people find Left on Base in the Bush Leagues? W- where would you suggest they go to find it? And and uh, what else you want to plug? You, you work on anything else? <laughs> well, first off. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and the retail price is $36, or you can save 30%. And uh, the best way to do that is go on my website, www.galenwhitebaseball.com. Go to the orders page, and there will be information on how they can go to the publisher, Roman and Littlefield. That's R-O-W-M-A-N and Littlefield. And they are the ones offering a 30% discount that brings the retail price down to $25, $25 shipping uh, you got a book for a little bit over $30. If you add a second book, it's only $1 shipping. So now you're really saving money. That's one way. And then, of course, like I say, Amazon, Barnes & Noble uh, should have the book as well. But it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Robert. But this one, because of the connection with Texas, a lot of Texas stories, was which was not necessarily by design. 
it's just kind of the way uh, the research took me. And Texas, of course, have some great minor league teams. And one of the things that I've noticed in promoting the book is this, that the passion that people have in the small towns of Big Spring, La Mesa, uh, in Texas is still there. Pro baseball left them. They didn't leave pro baseball. They still love the game. Always good characters in Texas. I grew up here, so I, I, I know you go to those small towns, and it's always fun to talk to those guys. Well, can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming on the show, Galen. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, Robert. I always appreciate it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hi.